The church in ancient Ephesus was in some real trouble. Paul had founded the church and he had ministered there for two years. And it seems that near the end of while he was working there, some liars that Paul's going to say were devoted to deceitful spirits began preaching a false gospel in the church. They said that what God really wanted humanity to do was to obey their own made-up interpretation of the Old Testament law. Now, Paul handled the situation by expelling these false teachers from the church, which was the right thing to do. But when the time came for Paul to move on from Ephesus, because he had to continue his missionary work, he started, he started to worry that in his absence this heresy might return. And so Paul told his associate Timothy to remain in Ephesus and make sure this heresy did not arise again after Paul left. But unfortunately, Paul's fears were well-founded. And in his absence, this heresy returned, and it harmed many aspects of the Ephesian church. It fragmented the church's unity. It caused ethnic division within the church. It caused division between those who were deceived in the church and those who still held on to the true gospel. It clouded the church's gospel witness. And the church's usefulness to Christ was seriously threatened. Now, sometime later, Paul learned what was going on in Ephesus, and he was understandably concerned. He wanted to get back to Ephesus to fix things, but he was busy working elsewhere. And so what Paul said is, I'm going to write a letter to Timothy, who's still there on the ground, and he'll take care of it. And the book that Paul wrote was the book of 1 Timothy, which is what we're studying right now. Now, if you want to know why Paul wrote the book of 1 Timothy, really the key verses in the book are in chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. And Paul says this, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and ground of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. This is what Paul says to Timothy. You've got to remember the true gospel. Jesus Christ is God the Son who became a man, who died for our sins and rose again, put the gospel first in the church. And he says, Timothy, you can do that by following the instructions in this letter. Because this letter reveals how the church should conduct itself corporately in light of the truth of the gospel. So as you obey these instructions, Timothy, as the church returns to the gospel and remembers how it should conduct itself because of the gospel, you will drive out the error which is destroying your church. Right there is the logic of the whole book. Now Paul addresses a number of topics in 1 Timothy about what the local church should do and how we should behave. He's going to discuss how church members should treat each other, who the church's leaders should be, gender roles in the church, and other important matters. But before Paul talks about any of these things, he starts with one critical matter which he has adjudged to be more important than all the rest, and that issue is congregational prayer. We're going to see this morning that congregational prayer is vital in the life of every local church. 
because congregational prayer reminds us of the truth of the gospel, and because God uses congregational prayer to accomplish His good purposes both inside and outside the church. And so this morning we're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-7. through 7. Today we're going to look at three points. First, we're going to see that we must pray all kinds of prayers. Second, we must pray for all kinds of people. And third, we must do this because it reflects the true gospel. So let's jump right into our first point, which is that the local church must pray all kinds of prayers. Paul says in chapter 2, verse 1 of 1 Timothy, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made. The word then that we find here in verse 1 is usually translated therefore. And this tells us that what Paul is saying in chapter 2 is connected to what he said in chapter 1. In chapter 1, Paul commanded Timothy to fight the heresy in Ephesus and to return that church to the true gospel. And how is Timothy to achieve this? Well, first of all, Paul says, above all else, Timothy has to tend to the church's prayer life. And he has to fix its practice of corporate prayer. Why? Why must the reform of the Ephesian church begin with addressing congregational prayer? I think there are two reasons. First, because the Ephesian church's corporate prayer has become very divisive. In chapter 6, we learn that this, the false teaching that, that Paul's dealing with produced in the church... Envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people. It's not hard to see how this could happen. Because the Ephesian heresy was all about ethnic division and legalism, which would naturally cause Jewish believers in the church to look down on the Gentiles. And Gentile believers in the church who thought they were doing the right thing by keeping the Old Testament law to look down on other Gentiles that didn't want to keep the Old Testament law. All of this would have bred elitism and strife. And it seems that this strife has spilled into the church's prayer life. Because later in chapter 2, Paul says, look at verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Why does Paul have to say this? Because apparently in Ephesus, many of the prayers being offered in the church are not being offered with a sincere or loving motivation. They're praying with an angry, quarrelsome spirit. I don't know if you've ever seen this in a church. I have. It's not much fun to watch. People get up to pray, but what they're praying isn't really being directed to God. They're slamming somebody in the church. Maybe they're being passive-aggressive. Maybe they're just being really aggressive. But this is false prayer that God will not honor, which does not edify the hearers or move them to worship. It just makes them angry. And if this is what is going on in Ephesus, no wonder Paul wants Timothy to correct the, church, the church's prayer life first. Because while this is how the church is praying, nobody's going to want to get back together and patch things up. The combative and divisive prayers have to stop first. But second, I think Paul wants Timothy to emphasize prayer because the very act of a local church praying together produces many positive things. Paul previously told the Ephesians in Ephesians 6 where he talks about the armor of God, the characteristics that believers need to live by if we want to withstand spiritual attack. 
At the end of that passage, Paul says, the church must collectively pray at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Paul says congregational prayer is something that strengthens and equips the church. It knits the church together in love. It forms part of the, the armor of God that protects the members of the church from the schemes of the evil one. And so if Timothy's able to get the church praying together in a God-honoring way again, the Ephesian church is going to be strengthened and it's going to be able to resist the demonic doctrine that is splitting it apart. And so the church needs to pray. But how is it to pray? Not like it has been with a bunch of hostility and factiousness. Rather, it needs to offer sincere prayers to God. And Paul now uses four times or four terms to describe the prayers that the church should offer. First, he says they need to pray supplications. They need to be appeals to God made to address specific needs. That's what that word means. Second, he says prayers. That's just a very general term in Greek for prayer. Third, he says intercessions. That's a prayer to God on behalf of someone else. And fourth, he says thanksgivings. Expressing to God gratitude for his kindness to us. And so Paul uses these four terms to describe the church's ideal prayer life. Now, what is Paul getting at here? Is this an exhaustive list of all of the kinds of prayer that a church could pray? I don't think so. Because these terms are quite general and some of them overlap with the others. And because the Bible tells us there are a lot more than just four types of prayers that we could pray. We see this in the book of Psalms. There are psalms of lament, like Psalm 13 which cry out to God in times of sorrow. There are psalms of praise, like Psalm 99, that worship God because of who He is. There are psalms of trust, like Psalm 23, that says, God, I'm in the valley of the shadow of death, but I trust that you're with me. And there are many other kinds of psalms. And so I don't think Paul here is saying, well, the church can only pray prayers that fall into these four words that I'm giving you here in 1 Timothy 2. I don't think that's the idea at all. I think the idea is Paul uses these four terms to show that the church's prayer life should consist of all different kinds of prayers. You know, corporate prayer in many churches is very stilted and formulaic. They may, preach, they may pray the Lord's Prayer. They may pray some other formulaic prayers which don't change very much. But what Paul envisions here is a church that prays different kinds of things as different occasions arise. The church is to have a varied prayer life because life is filled with variety. And friends, the church is to gather together and pray about all sorts of matters. Frankly, I worry that we don't put enough emphasis here on congregational prayer. Paul thought it was really important. In this book, which is all about how the local church should operate, Paul says this issue rates first of all and friends, likewise, we need to see congregational prayer as a matter of first importance. The early church understood this. Listen to how the earliest church is described in Acts 2.42. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. 
Prayer was one of the core characteristics of the earliest church. And friends, prayer's got to be at the core of this church too. And I'm not just talking about us privately praying for each other or for the elders praying for the church. Yes, these things should happen. But beyond these prayers, we also need real, vibrant, corporate prayer. When we get together, prayer must not just be a tip in the, of the cap in God's direction before we get back to doing our own thing on Sunday morning. No. When we gather together, we need to implore God to meet with us and to do business with us through His Word. We need to praise Him and worship Him verbally. We need not just to recite our petitions, although we should do that, but we need to pray about the sort of things that are on Jesus' prayer agenda in Matthew 6. For God's name to be glorified, for His will to be done, for His kingdom to come. And beyond only doing this on, on Sunday mornings, friends, the elders of this church have determined the other major corporate gathering of this church should be a prayer meeting on Wednesday nights. Now, I know that the work week is long. And I know by Wednesday night you say, well, I'm really tired. But friends, you need to understand, participation in the congregational prayer meeting is not some minor or optional thing we cooked up because we know you don't have anything better to do on a Wednesday. And being here for the prayer meeting is not something only for the leaders or the super-involved saints to be doing. It's not something we aim to be at once every two months when things get convenient and then we say, wow, I did great, I finally got there. No, friends. It should be our regular intentional practice to gather together for prayer. These are very famous words in Philippians 4. Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And you know what, friends? This is a congregational instruction. And so I would urge you in the strongest possible way, please be present when we gather together for prayer. And when you're here for the prayer meeting, don't just sit there, but engage, right? Offer prayer requests. Pray for the requests that are put forward. Friends, this is an essential practice for believers because it lets us be involved in each other's lives. It involves us in the life of the church. It lets us worship God in a way that we're going to see in just a minute. He highly values, and it builds the church up, it knits us together, and it guards us against the evil one. Friends, congregational prayer must not be an afterthought. It is of the first importance. And we are to pray corporately all kinds of prayers as we encounter all kinds of situations. But this leads now to our second point. And now we learn that we need to pray for all kinds of people. The Ephesian church must pray, but who should it pray for? This would have been a very contentious issue in the church. Because if a large part of the church thinks that God only cares about those who are ethnically Jewish, or those who are trying to keep the Old Testament law, then it would be very easy for those folks to say, well, I'm willing to pray for those who are ethnically Jewish, or I'm willing to pray for those who keep the law, but I'm not going to pray for any of you Gentiles here who don't want to keep the law. I'll pray for those in my faction, but not for anybody else. But Paul says, no, when the church gathers together, we're not just to pray for the people we like, the people who are in our faction. We're not just to pray for the members of our own church. We're not just to pray for Christians. Rather, look, look back at verse 1. Paul says, 
Petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings have to be made for all people. Christians are to pray for all people, believing and unbelieving alike, Jew and Gentile, white, black, Hispanic, Asian, and every other ethnicity alike, rich and poor alike, Republican and Democrat alike. Paul identifies who we should pray for, and he defines that group in the most expansive way he can possibly describe it. He says, pray for all people, no matter their background, no matter their sins. Pray for church members. Pray for your families. Pray for your friends and your neighbors. Pray for your enemies. Pray for strangers. Pray for everyone. In fact, there isn't a single person out there who the church shouldn't be willing to pray for. And just to make sure that the Ephesians understand how broad this instruction is, Paul says in verse 2, pray for kings and for all who are in high positions. Now, if some of the Ephesians were unwilling to pray for Gentiles, or if they were unwilling to pray for those outside the church, Paul now gives them an instruction that would totally get in their face about the way they've been thinking about prayer. Because Paul says, no, 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 actually you need to be praying for the Gentiles who are in charge of the unbelieving world system. Wow. Now this command would be a tough pill to swallow, not just for those who were caught up in heresy in the Ephesian church. This would be tough for the Ephesians in the church who uh, remained loyal to the true gospel. Because who is the king that Paul tells them here to pray for? Well, when Paul wrote this, Ephesus was part of the Roman Empire. And so their king was the Roman emperor. And you know, the Christians in Ephesus would have a lot of reasons to hate the emperor. See, Ephesus was one of the centers of what was called the imperial cult, which worshipped the Roman emperor as a god. And this cult proved to be a huge problem for many Christians. Because what this cult said was every citizen every year had to come in front of an image of the emperor and burn some incense and say, Caesar is Lord. And if you said, I'm not going to do that because Jesus is Lord, you could get criminal penalty anywhere from a fine to the death penalty. So Ephesian Christians would have a lot of reasons to hate the emperor who put them in this terrible position of having to choose between loyalty to Christ or life and liberty. Moreover, when Paul wrote this instruction, the Roman emperor was a fellow named Nero. Maybe you've heard of him. He was a corrupt tyrant. Eventually, he became a terrible persecutor of Christians. He fed Christians to wild beasts. He had them crucified. Some he had lit up as human torches to light his evening parties. Nero was a bad guy. And yet Paul says to the Ephesians, Pray for Nero. And pray for all who are in high positions. Pray for everyone in Nero's government. Now the Ephesians might reasonably wonder, why should we pray for a man who sinfully demands our worship? Why should we pray for our tormentor and those who enable him? But thankfully we don't have to speculate why Paul gives this instruction because he tells us why they're to pray this prayer. Verse 2, he says, pray for them that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. The first reason that the Ephesians were to pray for Nero and his government, and the first reason that we are to pray for our political leaders today, is because prayer actually accomplishes something. This is an important truth, and we've got to think about this carefully. 
Ephesians 1.11 says that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. And Malachi 3.6 says, I, the Lord, do not change. So God reigns over everything. He has an eternal plan and purpose which will come to pass, which is unchanging because God himself is unchanging. So it's not that our prayer changes God's mind or that our prayer bends God to our will. No. And yet, prayer impacts the real world. Because God in his sovereignty has ordained that one of the ways that he will bring his will into effect in this world is by answering our prayers. Now again, we've got to be careful how we talk about this. Because there are some people out there that say, well, our prayers enable God to accomplish things that otherwise he could not accomplish. That is emphatically false. Paul says in Acts 17, God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. God does not need us or our prayers to accomplish his will. But for his own glory, God chooses to use our prayers to sometimes bring his will to pass. Now, certainly some things are fixed by God and ordained, and no amount of praying can change them. In Galatians 4, we read that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. That is, God determined when Jesus would be born. And no amount of praying for or against that was going to change that day. But sometimes God decrees certain things that will or will not happen in this world depending on whether someone prays about it. We see this in Exodus 32. Israel had sinned terribly against the Lord with the golden calf. And God says to Moses, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. God says, I'm going to destroy Israel and start over with Moses. But we read that Moses implored the Lord his God. Moses prayed for Israel. And in verse 14 we read, the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. God said he was going to destroy Israel. Moses prayed, and God didn't destroy them. Did Moses change God's mind? No, God doesn't change. Was God just bluffing when he said, I'm going to deal with Israel? No, God doesn't lie. God meant what he said, and yet Israel was spared. Why? It seems the issue was this. God said he would destroy Israel, but in his secret will, God apparently decreed that this was contingent such that if Moses prayed for Israel, that would get Israel one outcome from God's hand. And if Moses did not pray for Israel, Israel would get a different outcome from God's hand. And so Moses' prayer really mattered in what happened. It caused Israel to go from getting one outcome to the other. We find a similar idea in Ezekiel 22.30. Where God says, I sought for a man among them who should stand in the gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Again, God says, I'm going to destroy Israel. But this time nobody prays, and Israel wound up largely being destroyed. Friends, prayer matters. Because there are times when our praying or our failure to pray generates real consequences in what happens around us. And so we need to pray because God uses our prayers to achieve his purposes. And our passage says 
that one of the purposes that God brings about through our prayers is for our political leaders to rule well. So that through them, God might graciously bless all of the people in our society, believing and unbelieving alike, with what Paul calls a peaceful and quiet life. A life free from the turbulence and chaos that characterizes so many societies. Now, we might not like this idea of praying for our leaders any more than the Ephesians would have liked the idea of praying for Nero. But if that's us this morning, we need to remember the truth of Romans 13, verse 1. There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Our government was put in place by God, just like every previous administration was. Now, you might not want to hear that if you really dislike our leaders, but friends, the Bible's clear about it. Daniel 4.17 says, The Most High rules the kingdom of men, and He gives it to whom He will. Sometimes God lets a nation have a judicious government as a kindly gift. Sometimes God lets a nation have a poor government as a means of judgment. But the Scriptures are clear that God raises up governments for His own purposes. And one of God's purposes, according to Romans 13, is this. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. For the ruler is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Generally speaking, God uses governments as a means of graciously constraining criminality and instability within society. And God does this because sometimes he wants to show kindness to both the saved and the lost. This is what theologians call God's common grace. And God wants society to be stable. And maybe one of the reasons God wants society to be stable is because in stable societies, you have a lot more favorable conditions for the rapid expansion of the gospel. And so governments that constrain evil are a means of God's grace. But understand that Paul wrote all of this about governments uh, promoting stability while living not under George Washington or Winston Churchill. He also wrote Romans 13 while Nero was on the throne. And yet Paul says even Nero has a mandate from God to keep order. So Paul says pray for your leaders to do a good job in providing stability and tranquility to society so that your life is not chaotic and for the sake of the gospel. Now, I know praying for our leaders is an unpopular topic these days because we live in a really politically polarized time. I get it. I remember a number of years ago when I was very immature in the faith, one day I was in a really foul mood because I wasn't doing well financially or occupationally because the economy was bad. And I was hanging out at my parents' house, and they were watching the news. And a prominent politician came on TV, and I blamed this guy for a lot of what was going on. So I jumped out of the couch, and I started screaming obscenities at this picture of this man on the TV. And maybe today some of you relate to this. Maybe you think this is funny. A lot of people seem to think it's appropriate to do this sort of thing today to our politicians. But my parents at the time rebuked me, and they were right to do it. Because the Apostle Peter tells us believers are to honor the emperor. And again, he was writing that about Nero. So friends, we need to respect our politicians even in our speech. And we must pray for them. 
Because the scripture says that the rulers are God's servant for your good. And if you say, I don't think our current leaders could possibly be servants of God because they're so wicked, I would remind you that no Republicans or Democrats have crucified any Christians or burned them alive. But Nero did. And Paul said Nero was God's servant for your good because he was a figure entrusted by God to provide stability and order to his society. And if that's true for Nero, it's true for our leaders on the federal, state, and local level. These are the men and women entrusted by God to provide us with the grace of tranquil and stable lives. And friends, I've got to tell you, it's best if they do this job and if they do it well. And Almighty God, in the Lord Jesus Christ, through the Apostle Paul, commands us to pray for our leaders so that would happen. And that is to be a regular part of our congregation's prayers. We are to pray for our leaders, for them to rule wisely and well, and also for them to repent and be saved. Paul's going to talk about how prayer is connected to the gospel in a minute. But we need to know that as we pray for all people, and as we pray for our leaders, we should pray for them to be saved. Because God answers prayer. And God may choose to bring about His will in this world in saving some of the people that we pray for by answering our prayers. And so, friends, it is right for us to pray for everyone, including our leaders. And I'm not talking here about praying imprecatory prayers, prayers of cursing for our leaders. I remember a number of years ago, a member of the military got in trouble because he circulated a prayer that he said he was praying for the president at that time. And the prayer was Psalm 109, verse 8, which says, May his days be few, may another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. This is a prayer of cursing, which the book of Acts tells us prophesied the fate of Judas Iscariot. This is not the kind of praying for our leaders that Paul has in mind here. Now, it may be at certain times right to pray that God would bring a wicked ruler to justice. I don't think Christians would have been wrong to pray that if they were living during Nero's persecution or if they were living in Nazi Germany or Stalin's Russia or today in North Korea. After all, the souls of the martyrs in heaven in Revelation 6 cry out for justice. And if they're in heaven, we better assume their prayer is not sinful. It's not wrong to ask God to bring justice on the unrepentant. But first we must pray that our unrepentant enemies would repent and so avoid God's judgment. Because Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So first we've got to pray for our leaders to repent. And only if they persist in unrepentance should we even begin to think about praying for God to do justice. So, friends, we are to pray for our leaders, for their souls and their wisdom, because God uses those prayers to give us tranquil lives. And heaven knows we need a little bit of tranquility and stability today. But we're also to pray for our leaders, Paul says, because God intends for believers' lives to be marked by godliness and dignity, by a desire to obey God and perform the duties that he gives us, and displaying an awareness of the idea that spiritual matters are serious. You know, the person who flippantly curses and prays against our leaders displays neither of these characteristics. That person shows that he doesn't care what God has said in his word, and he doesn't understand the gravity of the judgment of God. But when we humble ourselves to pray, even for those we don't like, even for our leaders or our enemies, it shows that we care about what God says more than our fleshly desire to see people we don't like brought down. 
And it shows that we apprehend the seriousness of spiritual matters and that we know that what God says is best. And so we are to pray for our leaders and we're to pray for all people. But we come now to our last point, which is that we must pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people because doing so reflects the true gospel. Paul now explains his instructions for prayer in verse 3. He says, This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. The church should pray corporately all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people because God wants us to. God finds it to be good. The Greek word translated good here often means something like beautiful. In chapter 4, this is the word that Paul uses to talk about how God views the creation. It's good. It's appropriate. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful thing. And God sees his people gathering together for corporate prayer in that same way. More than that, the word pleasing here is often found in the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament in describing the animal sacrifices of ancient Israel. The sacrifices, if they were performed properly and with the right spirit, were pleasing or they were acceptable to God. And by using this word, Paul is getting at an idea that we find throughout the New Testament. 1 Peter 2 says that the church is a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And Hebrews 13 tells us these sacrifices that we are to offer are not animal offerings, but rather a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name, and doing good and sharing what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And in the same way, congregational prayer is a spiritual sacrifice that is pleasing and acceptable to God, which the local church must offer to God, who Paul here describes as our Savior. Now, this Greek word translated Savior on the most basic level means someone who rescues people. And that's a good reason to pray to God. Because, friends, in this vast world, we don't have a lot of control over our lives or what happens to us. But God does have control. And He is faithful to help us. So we should pray to Him. But the Bible most often speaks of God being the Savior in terms of His willingness to deliver us from our greatest problem, which is sin. And the terrible judgment that our sin deserves, which is the wrath of God. Friends, God saves people from His own righteous fury. And so he is a savior. And in fact, he is the only savior from that ultimate calamity. In Isaiah 43, he says, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no savior. And it is this notion that God saves us from the power and penalty of sin that Paul focuses on as he continues. Because he says that congregational prayer honors God our savior, verse 4, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This verse has caused great controversy over the centuries. And the controversy relates to the statement that God desires all people to be saved. Historically, people have interpreted this in one of three ways. First, some folks called universalists look to this statement as a proof text for the idea that ultimately God's going to save everybody and condemn nobody. They justify this conclusion by pointing out that the Greek word here translated desire ordinarily means will. And so universalists say, see, God wills to save every human being. Now, their interpretation can only be sustained if you read this one verse in isolation from the rest of Scripture. 
Because Jesus himself, tells, Jesus himself tells us in Matthew 25, on the last day, he will say to many people, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Revelation 20 tells us if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he will be thrown into the lake of fire. And the Apostle Paul likewise taught that not everyone will be saved. In 2 Thessalonians 1, he says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, he will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. So not everyone is going to be saved. And in fact, the universalists who want to use this verse to claim that they will haven't even read the whole verse. Because at the end of verse 4, Paul equates being saved with coming to the knowledge of the truth that is coming to repentant faith in the gospel. And if you can only be saved by coming to faith in the gospel, then it's obvious not everybody's going to be saved because not everybody believes. So we should reject the universalist interpretation of this verse. Now second, some people interpret God desires all people to be saved to mean that God desires all kinds of people to be saved. This interpretation comes from two very correct biblical convictions. The first is that not everyone will be saved. And the second is that the death of Christ generates an efficacious impact only for believers. Here's where they get that. Galatians 1.4, Jesus, we read that Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Ephesians 5.2, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Titus 2.14, he gave himself for us to redeem us. In each of these statements, Jesus' death is said to be for us, that is, for believers. And so some interpreters who hold these two correct beliefs, that not everyone will be saved, and that Jesus' death is only efficacious for believers, say, well, if that's the case, Paul here cannot mean that God desires all people individually to be saved. And so they conclude that what Paul is saying here is that God intends to save people from every possible background. Now, this would be a very important thing for Paul to tell the Ephesians, who were divided along racial lines because of the heresy in their midst. They needed to know that God wanted to save Jews and Gentiles alike. And we're going to see Paul actually makes that point here in just a minute. And so this is certainly a possible interpretation. And yet I think the weakness of this interpretation is that while it is theologically correct, and while it would answer a problem that Paul means to answer in Ephesus, it doesn't adequately address what the text actually says. Because the text does not say that God desires to save all kinds of people, but rather that God desires to save all people. And so I would cautiously hold to a third interpretation here, which says there is a sense in which God desires to save all people individually. After all, God says in Ezekiel 33, As I live, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back for your, from your evil ways, for why will you die? This is the God, 2 Peter 3 says, is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This is the God who Paul said at Mars Hill, now commands all people everywhere to repent. Because this is the God, John 3.16 says, who so loved the world he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. These are clear biblical texts that say, in a sense, God does desire all people to be saved. And yet, despite this gracious desire within himself, despite giving his son, despite his good faith offer of the gospel, 
apart from God's intervention, no one would come to faith. Because Romans 3 says, no one seeks for God, no one does good, not even one. And so the God, who in one sense desires all people to be saved, also wills that those who will not believe the gospel will be lost. And this same God, also desiring not to condemn the whole human race, graciously purposes to sovereignly save some. So he draws some to the knowledge of the truth. To what truth? Well, to the truth of the gospel, which Paul now sets forth in one of the most important statements in the whole Bible. Verse 5. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. We started this service by hearing the most basic truth of Judaism, that there is only one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's only one God, and who is he? Well, Paul said in chapter 1, he's the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. He is sovereign, he is transcendent, he is distinct and other from this world, and he is righteous and morally pure. And when we think about who this God is, we realize we have a problem. Because we humans are all fallen sinners. We are not righteous or morally pure. We are born in sin, and then we sin some more throughout our lives. And ultimately, we are accountable to this God who is justly furious about the evil things that you and I have done. That's a huge problem. Especially when you come to the realization that Job came to in chapter 9 of his book. Job had a problem with God. And he realized that even though he thought he was in the right, he had no chance to stand before God and plead his case. Because the transcendent, all-good, all-knowing God is always in the right. And to stand in His presence is to have our guilt revealed. And if that's the case, how can any of us be reconciled to this God? How can any of us have a relationship with Him? How are we not just to be immediately condemned? And Job saw this and he despaired. Because he saw his own fallenness and finitude was an impediment to being able to repair his relationship with God. And that's why Job cried out for a mediator. For one who might lay his hand on us both, Job says. One who can bring God and humanity together and resolve our issues and fix our relationship. But there's good news. Which is that God in his grace purposed from before time began to provide a mediator who could restore humanity's relationship to him. And who is this mediator? It's the one who is both God and man. In Titus chapter 2, Paul will call Jesus our great God and Savior, but here Paul emphasizes his humanity. He is the man. In Greek, this word man is just the normal word for a human. He is the human, Christ Jesus. And Jesus, who bridges this gap between God and man, can alone mediate on our behalf. And how has he done this? How has he brought us into a right relationship with the Father? Well, Paul tells us in verse 6, He gave himself as a ransom for all. A ransom payment was owed. A price had to be paid to bring us into a right relationship with God. A price that satisfied God's anger against our sin. Romans 3 tells us the wages of sin is death. Leviticus 17 says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. To atone for our sin, someone had to die. And Jesus said in Mark 10, the Son of Man came to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus came to this earth to be the ransom payment for you and me, to bring us into a right relationship with God. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's an exchange. Christ takes our place as our substitute. He becomes our sin. He bears the wrath that our sin deserved, and he gives his sinless righteousness to those who believe so that we can stand before God. That's how he brings us into a right relationship with God. That's how he mediates for us. The author to the Hebrews says the same thing. Hebrews 9, 14. Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purified our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Jesus' death has inaugurated a new covenant, a new relationship between God and humanity. And Jesus has mediated this by offering himself as both priest and sacrifice to the Father to allow us to draw near to God. And friends, I need you to know this morning, Jesus alone can mediate our relationship with God. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. In Acts 4, 12, we learn there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. We can be right with God only by repentantly entrusting ourselves to Jesus on the basis of the fact that he is God and man, that he died and rose again. And Jesus, by his death, has made a way for all of humanity to be reconciled to God. Faith in Jesus is the only way. Friends, we cannot have a saving relationship with God mediated by other religions or philosophies. We cannot be reconciled to God through the ministries of so-called human priests. We cannot, as the Roman Catholic Church teaches, believe that Jesus had help or partnership in his mediation. Pope Pius XI in 1935 said, quote, With Jesus, Mary has redeemed the human race. His successor, Pius XII, wrote in 1948, quote, It was she, the second Eve, who free from all sin offered Jesus on Golgotha to the eternal Father for all the children of Adam. Every syllable of that is unbiblical, blasphemous nonsense. Hebrews 9 says Christ offered himself to the Father by the eternal Spirit. Mary had nothing to do with it. Mary wasn't sinless. Mary herself confessed that she needed a Savior, a mediator, in Luke 147. Friends, the only mediator we need is Jesus Christ, who alone can bring us to God. So Paul says in verse 6, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in truth and faith. This phrase, the testimony given at the proper time, is a little unclear. But Paul seems to be saying that Jesus offered himself as a ransom to bring us to God. And that was his testimony, showing that God had a gracious intent towards mankind. And God provided this testimony at the moment that he chose. But now Paul draws all this together by pointing out that God went even further. God didn't just provide a mediator. God determined that the whole world should know about it. So he called Paul to serve as a herald to proclaim this message, as an apostle to speak for Jesus. And God sent Paul to the Gentiles to proclaim this message. And here, indeed, we come full circle because this was the very issue at, at, at stake in Ephesus. 
The heretics in Ephesus denied Paul's gospel. They denied the Gentiles could be saved by faith alone. And so by necessity, they denied Paul's apostleship, which is why Paul emphatically insists here that his apostleship was authentic. But this is the big idea from this morning's sermon. Friends, God is made right, humanity is made right with God, not by our ethnic background, not through the Old Testament law, but because of the death of Christ. And because salvation is entirely by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and not as a result of your ethnic background or your ability to perform the law, then anyone can be saved. God says to everyone everywhere, repent. And God, in fact, saves all kinds of people. And if that is true, then it is appropriate for the local church, which is made up of all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds, to, rem to remember that what binds us together in the end is our common participation in Christ, not anything else. We are the blood-bought people of God, saved by God's mercy. And so we dare not be elitists. And so when we pray, we're not to be elitists. We're not to say, oh, I, I don't pray for those kinds of people. No, we're to pray for everyone. And we're to pray all kinds of things for all kinds of people. Because God sometimes brings about his purposes in this world in answer to our prayers. So we need to also pray for the salvation of the lost, even when the lost are our political leaders. And we're to pray that our leaders do a good job so that we can enjoy stable and tranquil lives. This morning, I want to urge you, if you've never come to Jesus, repentantly believe in him. Jesus died to bring you to the Father so that your sins could be forgiven. Turn to Christ and be saved. Salvation's not available any other way. But friend, if you are a believer, make prayer a priority in your life. And if you're a member of this church, join with us regularly when we gather to pray. And let us pray for one another and for all people because corporate prayer is a matter of the first importance because it reminds us of the true gospel. Because it strengthens our church and protects us against the evil one. Because God uses our prayers to bring about his purposes in this world and to save the lost. And ultimately, friends, we're to pray because this is good and pleasing to God our Savior.